it is a long uh, it is a long term project um, when you're doing an orchard and a long term project to establish silvopasture. So I think that's probably true that we have the right temperament to do this kind of work. Welcome to the 262nd installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. About a year ago, Rachel Henderson and Anton Patak were contacted by an insect expert asking if they would be interested in establishing more pollinator space at their orchard in western Wisconsin. Initially, the owners of Mary Dirty Face Farm thought that adding more bug-friendly habitat would simply involve planting wildflowers in a meadow-like setting. But the person who contacted them, Sarah Fultz-Jordan, was open to other ways a farm could help beneficial insects. Fultz-Jordan is a senior pollinator conservation specialist with the Xerxes Society, which focuses on invertebrate conservation. She told Henderson and Batak that pollinators like wild bees actually rely heavily on wooded habitat as well. That was good news to the farmers who have long had an interest in adding a civil pasturing enterprise to their orchard business. Civil pasturing involves grazing livestock in a controlled manner around trees. Farmers who implement this system like how it can add economic value to wooded acres while providing shade to grazing animals, which is increasingly important as climate change makes extreme heat waves more common. And ecologists like that civil pasturing provides livestock producers a financial incentive to preserve and manage wooded habitat. In the driftless region of the upper Midwest, Civil pasturing provides great potential for supporting pollinating insects, which are facing significant threats to their survival. Henderson and Batak are graduates of the Land Stewardship Project's Farm Beginnings and Journey Person courses, through which they were introduced to holistic management, which teaches participants to look at things from a whole farm perspective, rather than focusing on raising just one commodity. Once they got their orchard business set up about a dozen years ago, they began thinking about what secondary enterprises would complement it without interfering with their existing workload too much. A few years ago, the farmers started rotationally grazing a neighbor's cattle on open land not planted to orchard trees. They also turned hogs out into their orchards in the spring and fall to clean up apples, helping to break up pest cycles. Getting deeper into civil pasturing seemed to make sense. Besides, their orchard relies heavily on the services pollinating insects can provide. On a Saturday morning in late summer, Henderson showed a group of field day participants the result of that initial conversation with the bug expert. The field day, which is sponsored by the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service, also known as MOSES, featured a tour of a small pasture where two parallel rows ran 100 yards apart as they headed downhill several hundred feet. The rows were sprouting a mix of a couple dozen species of trees and berry bushes, some as tall as 18 inches, which were planted in the spring of 2021. Species like red maple, dogwood, basswood, juneberry, quaking aspen, bur oak, shagbark, hickory, and hackberry were represented. Fencing was protecting these new plantings for now, but eventually they'll be mature enough to provide dual services to the farm, pollinator habitat and shade for grazing livestock. This is a long game. Although benefits for some pollinators will emerge almost immediately, it will be five to ten years before any meaningful shade will come from some of the canopy-producing trees. After the field day, I talked to Rachel Henderson and Sarah Fultz-Jordan about how this form of civil pasturing helps balance profitable farming 
with healthy wildlife habitat. Henderson started out by describing how a secondary enterprise like silvopasturing helps add ecological and economic resiliency to their farm. We started planting our orchard in 2009. Um, from 2009 to about 2013, we were really in an establishment phase where we were planting intensively every year. We were monitoring as we went and, and making some adjustments to what we wanted to do, um, but really focused on getting that orchard um, and that fruit production established. We started marketing, um, figuring out what worked for us, and our focus all that time was on fresh fruit production. And then we kind of got our feet under us and were thinking about what was next for our farm. We were contemplating what we, you know, what we think of as sort of a secondary enterprise. And I should maybe plug right here that around that time, we also um, enrolled in the Journey Person program through LSP, which really encouraged us to be thinking about our whole farm planning and thinking about what we would do next. And as we had been getting started planting when we first, when we first bought our farm, I had had in the back of my mind that once we got established on, on our fruit production, um, once we were living full-time on our farm, that we might look at growing some vegetables uh, and doing some sort of niche markets for vegetables. And the more we got going on that and um, you know, practiced <laughs> at our garden, the more I started to feel like annual vegetable production, annual production of anything, uh, felt really, um, felt like it didn't fit well uh, with our systems. Um, it didn't, it meant uh, different types of equipment, and it also meant a lot of labor, a lot of labor needs at a time of year where we didn't have that labor to give, where we needed it for our farm. And so we started to think about what else um, would work well for us and get really interested in livestock production. You mentioned this, but one thing that we um, became really interested in was the potential for livestock to complement what we were doing and to even help us with some of our fruit production. So for example, we, um, for the last few years, have raised pigs from, we buy and feed our pigs in the spring and raise them to butcher in the fall. Uh, and we've been using those for orchard cleanup. So the pigs will come in at the end of, after harvest, eat up the fallen fruit off of the ground, and that really breaks up a lot of uh, pest cycles. So they're eating fallen fruit that contains larvae or even eggs. Eat, eat those up. They're killing the bugs. That's been studied, and we know they're not surviving the digestive systems of the pigs. Uh, and it's stopping the next generation that would otherwise come into our orchard in the spring. Um, anecdotally, I think we really see some improvement in, in our pest pressure that way. So that's one example of ways that livestock can be um, an additional enterprise, right? We have a source of on-farm income that isn't dependent on the same weather cycles as mm -hmm. our fruit is. So if we have a bad year for fruit, um, that doesn't impact um, whether or not we have a good year for pork. So it gives us a different, a different source of revenue, but also really complements the system that we're working on. So we've been thinking about different ways that we use livestock. Um, we've experimented with pastured poultry, and then we started getting into a little grazing. We have about, um, we have about 18 acres fenced in of pasture right now that had been a hay field. And for our first few years here, we just had a neighbor cut the hay. It wasn't great hay field. It's, um, it's, it wasn't terribly productive. And we weren't really interested in doing the things that would maybe make it a better hay field. Uh, the neighbor had talked about spraying Roundup and doing a year of corn and starting over with a new seeding. And that's pretty inconsistent with our values in farming and what we wanted to do. So we really got interested in, in grazing and the potential for grazing to build up the soil on the, um, in that pasture rather than, to, you know, rather than tearing it down and to just kind of work well with the, with the landscape that we have here. So 
we've been doing contract grazing or custom grazing in the summer, so they're not our cows. We have been able to learn a lot about grazing without having to invest in a herd, which has been really nice. Mm. So we've been grazing roughly uh, you know, May or June through October of every year. And it's been a great way, it's been a great way to build soil and to learn, kind of learn the ropes. But one thing we've really noticed, especially this year, has been so hot and dry. We have very few uh, opportunities for shade in our pastures as they stand now, and the cows are really attracted to those. And we know that we're not getting any better uh, in terms of the climate. We know that the, the summers aren't going to get any less weird or less extreme as we go forward. So we have been really interested in silvopasturing, which is you know the marriage of pastured, uh, pastured livestock and tree production as a way to improve our pasture, to improve the habitat that we have here, uh, and to hopefully reduce stress on the livestock that we're grazing. So this was a great opportunity. We were contacted by Xerces Society last winter um, about p- establishing some pollinator habitat on the farm. And you know, when, when I got that email and had my first conversation with Sarah Fultz-Jordan, we, you know, my mind sort of went to wildflower plantings. And mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, you know, I love wildflower plantings. We have a few, and I, I would not, uh, I'd love to put in more. But then I started thinking about what our farm needs. Um, and I was th- started thinking about these, these silver pasture strips and the ideas that I'd had and, and wondering if this could be an opportunity uh, both to get some funding to help us establish it, but also give me kind of the kick in the butt to actually get it done this year. Sarah was really excited about it, which, um, which I was uh, so happy and I'm so grateful for, to Xerces Society for being willing to kind of think outside the box on this project. Often when people are establishing, and you kind of alluded to this, establishing, say, pollinator habitat, it's on a rough corner of the farm Mm. where they're not, it's not, there's nothing else active on that farm, on that part of the farm anyway, which is great. You you get some benefits out of this, but this is really integrating it into the working aspect of your operation in a couple ways, and, and it's benefiting you you said you, you, you eventually will get that shade out of the system for the cattle, but you're an orchard and you need pollinators big mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. So that's a really nice, I think, coupling of the, the, that kind of integrating it into the working farms aspect of your operation. Yeah, absolutely. Like this, it, once it's established and mature, these... Um, the, this pollinator habitat will be an active part of our farm, not 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 just a passive uh, passive rough corner. That's a great point. Can you talk? Uh, Sarah talked a little bit when we were out there about there's a method to the madness about how this planting was done, but you you also had some ideas too about you wanted to mix in canopy type trees with the lower. Yeah. species a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about how that, some of the thinking that went into that? Yeah, so um, when we talk about silvopasture, one thing that is um, often, you know, important in a system like that is not just the shade that the trees can provide, but also like all their benefits that those um, tree and shrub species can have for livestock. Right now we're only grazing cattle, um, but we have talked about other smaller ruminants uh, as well. And I'm interest, I was really interested in choosing some species that could provide forage or have other benefits benefits for those livestock, mm-hmm. um, and including things that may not ever grow to be a, a full tree size, but still can provide some of that. So when we talk about willow, that's something that's really attractive to small ruminants, um, and that they often need uh, the tannins and the other kind of secondary compounds that you find in a tree like that. Hazelnuts, similarly. We have a few hazelnuts that we planted early that we try to harvest nuts off of, but I'd also be really interested in in having you know some that are just out in the pasture that can provide a little bit of nutrition to animals. And we, yeah, 
there are a few other June berries and some other things that will um, hopefully be some good forage species in mm -hmm. addition to providing that that shade and the pollinator habitat. So this is like this is very much in from my perspective. This is very much an experiment this year. Um, one thing that's interesting is there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of basis for silvopasture historically for being a farming system that works well. Um, and it's also, of course, an ecosystem that was, was what was here when we had oak savanna and bison roaming. Right. But there's a lot of people right now who are interested and who are experimenting. Savannah Institute is doing some great work trying to establish things and work with farmers. But there's also just not a ton of information about how to do this right and do it well. So we put in these two strips this year. I'm hoping to learn a lot uh, in the next couple of years about how these are functioning and what we've done well and what we could do differently. And then in long term, start adding some more. We also have, as part of the Xerces um, funding, we have about 10 additional large canopy trees that are in containers right now that I'm hoping to plant out in clusters in the pasture this fall. Sarah said what's great about working with somebody like you, th this is a long a, a long game. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> you might see five to eight years. It might be five to eight years before you see really this take off mm -hmm. uh, because it'll take a while for these canopy trees, canopy trees to get grown and that kind of thing. But the fortunate thing is, she, in this case, she's working with people who I was here in, I think, 2008, 2009, when you planted your first trees. <laughs> and it's amazing to see what you've done with this since then. So you obviously are used to playing the long game That's as, correct, as people yeah. who have an orchard. <laughs> That's correct, yeah. We, um, we started planting trees in 2009. Uh, you know, some of, those, some of those we started to see a crop in about 2012, 13. But really, it, it is a long-term uh, long project. Um, when you're doing an orchard and a long-term project to establish silvopasture. So I think that's probably true that we have the right temperament to do this kind of work. Sarah Foltz-Jordan then talked to me about the key role silvopasturing could play in supporting pollinator habitat. Where people's minds go when you say pollinator habitat is typically the tall grass prairie or the wildflower planting, which we do do a lot of. We At Xerces, we do um, quite a bit of habitat restoration on farms, ranging from insectary strips to beetle banks to larger wildflower plantings. But woodlands have recently been getting more and more research attention and conservation attention for the value that they um, that they offer to pollinators. And just a few examples. So wooded habitat or trees, shrubs provide food for pollinators um, in the form of nectar and pollen and leaf tissue for caterpillars. They also provide shelter, including nest sites and refuge um, from pesticides, uh, overwintering habitat. They also provide some more obscure nesting resources, so things like resin, or today we were looking at the leaf cutter bees and how they cut little circles out of certain plants, um, often woody plants, to bring them home and, and make their nests. Yeah, and I mean, at, more at the landscape scale, woodlands provide really important co connectivity um, between habitat parcels. Here in the Driftless, you know, a lot of land has been converted to agriculture, but we have these wooded areas that remain that provide some ways for, for insect populations to kind of move and expand. So let's talk a little bit about this project here on the farm. They, uh, Rachel took us out to a grazing paddock where they put in two rows of trees, but there is a method to the madness. This isn't just putting in a shelter belt or whatever. This is, a, this is trying to not only provide 
silvopasturing benefits for their grazing system, but also for pollinators. You know, Rachel, Rachel and I hashed this all out last winter, and she's been wanting to bring trees into this pasture for a long time, thinking about the value to livestock in terms of both forage and shade. I was excited to work on a pollinator-friendly project that was more focused on woody plants and, um, you know, the added challenge of trying to integrate these these trees with cattle mm -hmm. um, and how that all plays out. So we were looking at you know, things from the cattle palatability perspective and what might increase or decrease with cattle eating the plants. And then we were also looking at the pollinator value all the way from, you know, early spring forage. So I can just go through some of these plants. That'd that be we, great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we selected, oh, I don't know, maybe 25 different species, all native to this part of the driftless, ranging from red maple, which provides one of the earliest bloom for, for bees. People don't often realize that bees do visit some canopy trees, not all, but red maple is, is one of the better ones and also earlier than even some of our willows. Mm -hmm. We also included basswood, which honeybees love. Um, it's a great host plant for a number of different moths. The amelanchier is another one. Um, so edible berry, pretty early bloom. That's one that leafcutter bees use, and we saw that in action. There were quite a few things that we didn't include here because of just various considerations on the farm itself. So they have a lot of plums, and we're concerned about some disease spread from our native prunus to their domestic plums. So, you know, we left those out. And then we left out things like a and highbush cranberry that they're already growing. We included a few different dogwoods, some roses, some arrowwood, um, and then some canopy trees like quaking aspen, shagbark hickory, hackberry, bur oak, which has 378 some uh, Lepidoptera species that can feed on the, the leaves of that plant, hazelnut, um, Another one that's not typically thought of as a pollinator plant because it's wind pollinated, but we have a lot of Lepidoptera that feed on the leaves. And then as far as kind of the design of it, so it's a 15 acre pasture. We planted two long linear strips for now, um, although we're thinking of this as kind of an experiment that if, it, if it's successful, it will expand. Um, the plants were on, the, tr the canopy trees were spaced at 50 feet. But then between those canopy trees, we placed shrubs at five feet. Um, so it's kind of going to look like a wave. Um, we wanted to make sure those smaller shrubs will have enough light. What I like, really like about this project is, so often when, even on farms where maybe they get some cost share money to put in pollinator habitat or, or some funding, it's always, often it's on a separate piece of land that's not being used anyway. Exactly. A rough piece of land. Mm -hmm. This is really integrating it into the working farm aspect of it. It sounds like maybe in a couple ways. One is, for example, they're an orchard, so they really rely on pollinators. So having a thriving pollinator population is important for them. But also by having these, like you said, these linear lines of trees in their grazing paddocks, they're going to get shade for the cattle, they're, you know, they're going to get that, that benefit there, too. Yeah, I would agree. It's really a win-win for their, you know, their agricultural systems, the enterprises that they have going on, and also for uh, wildlife conservation. And, I mean, we do a lot of, 
I'm glad you pointed that out about habitat placement because we do a lot of each on farms. Um, often there just happen to be a lot of edge, weedy edge areas that aren't being used for anything. They're not in crop production and it makes a lot of sense to manage those weeds and convert those patches to something much more diverse um, and valuable for wildlife. But we also work with a lot of farmers who are, especially vegetable producers, who are interested in getting habitat integrated right in with their vegetable production. So insectary strips on the edges of fields and running through the fields, um, knowing that a lot of these insects have short flight distances. And you know, if you have the habitat integrated into the fields, you get the services right where you need them, the pollination and pest control services. For more on the Land Stewardship Project's Farm Beginnings and Journey Person courses, see the podcast page for episode number 262 at landstewardshipproject.org. There, you'll also find links to resources related to establishing pollinator habitat on farms. There's also a link to Ear to the Ground episode number 261, which describes how another Midwestern farm is utilizing civil pasturing to support pollinators. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.